Welcome to the Grace and Common podcast, a podcast by four friends who are all theologians from four countries on three continents. I am James Eglinton. I teach theology at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. I'm joined by my friends uh, Corey Brock, who is from the States, but who is the past, one of the pastors of St. Columba's Free Church here in Edinburgh. Marinus de Jong from the Netherlands, who is a pastor in Amsterdam. Ordinarily, we would also be joined by Grace Utanto from Indonesia, who, who teaches theology in Washington, D.C. in the States, but uh, Gray isn't with us this week. Uh, his wife just had a baby, so we've very kindly given him the week off. But we're excited today to be together, and we are going to be talking about neo-Calvinism and preaching. So, uh, welcome to the show to our listeners. It's great to have you with us. Um, so, we're talking about preaching this week. Um, so, Part of what we're doing in the podcast is thinking through the neo-Calvinist theological tradition and trying to shed some new light on it, trying to look at it from some angles that are maybe a bit underexplored. We're also uh, we're also all profoundly uh, um, influenced by the tradition in lots of different ways, and we've come to it from quite different backgrounds as well. And we think that those different backgrounds um, enable us to try and uh, explore and also to present the tradition in ways that might be quite surprising to people from each of our different contexts. Um, so this week we're thinking about neo-Calvinism and preaching. Um, all of us are preachers. Uh, as I said in the intro, Corey and Marinus uh, work full-time as pastors. I teach theology in a, in a university setting, but I also preach regularly and have been a preacher for many years. Uh, and the same is also true of Gray, although he's not with us this week. Um, part of why we were keen to talk about preaching together, and, and I'm excited to hear from from each of you, Corey and Marina, about and, and to learn from your insights on this, is that I guess for a lot of people, um, particularly evangelicals in the English-speaking world, um, if the, I think for a lot of people, their primary interaction with neo-Calvinism is that it's a theology for life outside of the church. You know, it gives people a theology of culture, it has a doctrine of common grace and so on. And we've been trying to challenge that a little bit in the podcast so far. So uh, we, we had an episode recently with Leah Boyd where we were talking about neo-Calvinism as a liturgical tradition. And I find that a really illuminating and, and helpful and uh, just encouraging discussion and thinking through the ways that this distinct theological tradition equips you to think about what to sing and how to sing it in church. And you see the whole richness of the tradition um, illuminating how we understand what we're doing in our in our liturgy and in our worship together uh, as as the church. But also today we're really keen to talk with each of you um, about preaching because it's also a, a tradition that has so much to say about preaching. And in fact, I think some of the very best preaching in our own day um, is also inexplicable without neo-Calvinism. But maybe we can get around to that a little bit later um, in, in the conversation. But in the first place, uh, maybe could, if each of you could talk to us a little bit about yourselves as preachers. So what kind of contexts do you preach in? Yeah, um, I agree, James, that neo-Calvinism has changed preaching and it's changed preaching in the 20th and 21st century for the better. Uh, but for, for me personally, I preach pretty much every week. I preach in a local church here in Edinburgh at St. Columba's. I was preaching before that at First Pres Jackson in Jackson, Mississippi. And um, yeah, this is the context here that I preach in is uh, really interesting because it's pretty diverse compared to what I I'd come from. Um, St. Columbus is an international congregation. It's got people from all over the world. Uh, I mean, we almost every single week have tourists walking through our door, walking down the Royal Mile. Um, and so you've got, uh, you've got all these, an amalgamation of all sorts of types of people. You've got Christians that have been believers for 50 years, that have been longtime free church, uh, did not, the denomination I'm, I'm in people um, that know their Bible, that are mature in the faith. Um, you've got a lot of people that uh, have come from a culture that feels a little bit more like Christendom, you know, where they have got a pretty robust background in Bible and doctrine and theology and all these things, but maybe have never professed faith. Um, they don't know exactly where they stand. They don't, they're religious perhaps, but uh, don't quite, haven't fully grasped the gospel. And then we've got a whole range of people from um, curious intellectuals 
uh, to atheists that, that walk through our, our doors every week. And so um, preaching to me here is something I love. I can't imagine not doing it. And I, I pretty much want to do it every single week with the occasional break. Um, but at the same time, it's really hard. And so I always feel like every week there's like this Monday through Saturday struggle, you know, that, and it's just going to start over and, um, but driven, driven to embrace the struggle theologically because of what I believe about preaching. And then at the same time, feel like the diversity of audience and the necessity to be both, um, simple or, or easy to understand and, and people for people that have never heard the gospel and at the same time speak to a person that's been in the Christian faith for 60 years um, makes it's a real challenge um, so yeah that's my context yeah it's interesting to hear Corey that I think our churches are pretty similar in many ways um, the church I work in is um, a small church in the city of Amsterdam um, it's maybe less international because it's in Dutch, obviously. So that makes it less easy for tourists to come in. Although we have people from various cultural backgrounds. Um, but yeah, the, otherwise the church is also the, the, the audience in the church, the people who, who, who visit are extremely diverse. Um, there's, there's just, as you say, like people who have been uh, in this neo Calvinist tradition for all their life are shaped by its doctrines and by years and years, decades of preaching. Um, who have it in, in their bones, so to speak, people like George Haring. Um, but um, there's also people who are very young in the faith who have just walked in the church maybe five years ago or 10 years ago and just are like beginning to be disciples. Um, and there's also always people like just walking in. Um, there's a park, one of the Amsterdam's largest parks is just in front of the church. Um, there's, so there's always people. Um, so yeah, I completely recognize that I have to like write my sermons for all those different people, like for the, the one who has been shaped for decades, and then also the one who knows almost nothing, or is maybe even an atheist. Um, and also I know, I, I remember well when I, like, I've been here for three years, after the first year, I visited all the families and all the people in the church, and I was like, how am I ever going to preach for these people? Is there is there going to be one sermon that, like, can be addressed to all these people and i think the answer is no um so maybe maybe corey you can you can elaborate a little bit on how how do you do that i mean what do you like um sometimes address that group and at other times the other group do you try to like have bits for everyone in a sermon um so who, who's the person you have in front of you when you are sitting behind your desk writing that sermon yeah I don't know that I have a great answer. I mean, I, I, um, I do think of it more in terms of bits. Like I, I look back at a sermon and hope that there are places in that sermon that were helpful to, to all those types of people, all those categories of people that are out there. So like, for example, I look back at a sermon and think that I have anything that was apologetic oriented at all, you know, that could just take one little step of helping bring somebody who's curious and wrestling with whether or not um, there is an invisible God at all. Is, is that there? And at the same time, um, I mean, I, I guess the way I think about it is that in terms of exegesis, I want to uh, help people see something that maybe they couldn't have seen on their own in every case in the text, but can also, no matter what their uh, background is can walk away and re-explain and understand that text um, and, and talk to somebody else about it. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, it, it's 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 tricky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I I try to do it a little bit the same way as, as you say as well. Although sometimes there may be a specific sermon that's just more for one group, and another time it may be more for the other group in the church. That happens, but you always try to have like bits for everyone who's uh, who's in there and in, in, in their different positions right and of course the text dictates mm -hmm. so much of that too i mean depending on what text you're in is going going to determine you know exactly what the focus of the audience might need to be what about you james yeah the kind of context that i preach in most regularly now is is our congregation here in edinburgh at cornerstone uh, which started off as a church plant we are now an established congregation in our own rights. Um, 
but it's a very intentional church in terms of trying to present the Christian faith and also trying to conduct worship together week by week in ways that are thoughtful towards people you know for whom none of this is familiar um, or people who just don't believe or who are really skeptical or who are wrestling with questions um, so uh, and that is its own distinct kind of challenge uh, and also a great opportunity so and, and we have people who come every week again who um, wouldn't self-identify as christians but who you know for whatever reason are there they're they're thinking about things um and we have people who've been christians for a really long time um, we also so our congregation is quite unusual in that um well it's not unusual in edinburgh to have a church that has people from all over the world because it's a it's quite a cosmopolitan city but um, our church is, as far as we're aware, the only church in the city that offers services in English and in Spanish. And that all grew from one Latin American family who started coming and then who brought another family and then that all kind of snowballed. And, um, and which was great because it wasn't our, the vision of the, the, the church plant at the beginning was not to have a bilingual Spanish English church, but that's what it became. Um, so we have um, bilingual aspects of, of all of our liturgy. We have um, whole services that are in Spanish. We have some services that are completely bilingual. Um, so it's quite unusual in that regard. So when you're preaching in that kind of a context, you're, you're also preaching to two very different sets of cultural sensibilities uh, as large groups of them, the congregation, uh, in terms of the Latinos who are uh, pretty much all from, from Latin America. And, uh, and then, you know, you have a big group of people from Western Europe, but you also, we also have people from, um, uh, from Africa. We have uh, people from East Asia, for example. So it's, uh, and, and all over Europe too. So, um, yeah. How, how you try and address all of these different people at the same time in one sermon is a challenge that I have as well, that I recognize. And it's interesting to hear what you both have to say about that. So this is where I actually find that the neo-Calvinist tradition has been tremendously helpful in working out how to do this because the tradition gives you particular, um, psychological insights and tools. Um, the tradition gives you its own anthropology, um, and it's a very Augustinian anthropology in terms of what a human being is, what human life is like, and it gives you a way to think about commonalities that are true of every single human being, like regardless of where they're from, also whether they're Christians or not, uh, where in the world they're from, you know, how they fit in terms of social demographics. Um, but there are some things that are true of every human psychologically, um, that the neo-Calvinist tradition articulates really well. I think especially, so one of my favorite theologians within the tradition is J.H. Bavinck, Herman Bavinck's nephew, uh, who's probably the most like, overtly Augustinian thinker in the whole tradition and the most psychological thinker in the tradition. Uh, so I find him just so extremely helpful in understanding that um, the basic shape of all human life and he takes this from Augustine's Confessions, but the basic shape of all human life is that we are, we are made by God and we're made for God. And we, we kind of lean in that direction in everything that we do, because that's the, the, the direction that our life is, is made for, but because of sin, because of the fallenness of the creation, as well as looking for God at exactly the same time, the shape of human life is to look away from God. Um, so we we have this kind of wrestling wrestling with God um, as human beings where we're both trying to get close to him and we're trying to make him submit on our own terms. And that's that's just what the human heart does. So that's J.H. Bavinck's way of using Augustine to try and understand like a much older reformed insight from John Calvin that the, that the human heart is a factory of idols. It's a production line of of new ways to try and get to God on our own terms with God as we want God to be. Um, and when you realize that, so J.H. Bavink has such great stuff on preaching. So where the idea is that um, wherever you are in the world, whichever audience you have, what you're trying to do is show them that scripture is also a book of God's redemptive work amongst human beings. And those human beings also have exactly the same core story, the, core, the same core disposition. And in all of their own ways, they're trying to wrestle with and also against God. Um, but then God in, in his salvation is, is, is wrestling back. Um, and it's how you help people 
see that um, in distinct ways in their own contexts and how you show them the shape of their lives. Um, like that, that's the task of the preacher, actually, um, for J.H. Bavink. And, and I find that really helpful because it gives me a way of approaching whoever might be there to hear one of my sermons, whether it's someone from the Latino part of my congregation, whether it's someone who is there for the first time, whether it's someone who's an atheist, whether it's a, you know, a regular uh, church attender, their human story is the same. And, but at the same time, the tradition equips you to try and open up what that looks like in very particular ways for them. Um, so the kind of psychology of the tradition, uh, I find just so exceptionally illuminating. It's fascinating that you that you mentioned just this, James, because like this this attention to the psychology and to um, well, what you did, like the Augustinian uh, impetus you you find in G.H. Bavink. That's that's exactly how I've not been trained in my New Calvinist um, <clears throat> seminary where I went to. Um, like really all the um, all the focus in our tradition, at least, was on the exp explanation of the text. Um, and so, well, our listeners have probably heard of the redemptive historical uh, method in preaching, which is, I think, now uh, much more popular in the U.S. than it is here in the Netherlands. But that was really the, the, the tradition I grew up in, and, and, and the seminary was, was shaped by that. It was, it was like getting beyond it a little bit, but like the the shadow of that way of preaching in, in a negative but also in a positive sense was still like dominant in the way I was trained um so that means that I that like paying attention to to psychology and to 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 to, to like the the way in which the message gets to your hearers um that is really something that was that was well it started to come when I was in seminary but it wasn't the main the main thing like what you needed to do in a sermon is preaching christ um from the text you had before you and explaining that text um and the critique uh, became very quickly that um that that you got like dry and rational preaching uh, from that redemptive historical method um and maybe it's good to explain a little bit more what that redemptive historical me method is for for those who, who are less uh, less introduced in, in the in a tradition. Well, um, I can I can give it a try. You 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 may want to add something to it if I if there are things I miss. Um, but I think that the, the the main thing is to when you preach or when you make an exegesis of a text, you try to find how. The passage, the one passage you are trying to explain or to preach on, fits into the the whole of God's redemptive historical plan. So that if you, it's the, the idea behind it is that if you want to properly explain a text, you need to find its proper place within that that overarching structure, um, and that structure means like how does this specific text fit into what God has been doing from creation and then fall through Israel, and then Jesus' resurrection and the cross. So how does this piece um, fit in exactly? So, um, for example, if you preach about, if you preach about David, um, you, you should not just preach about, like, this is, for example, David and Goliath. You could say, like, this is David, and he is a wonderful example of trust in God in the way he faces Goliath, and we similarly should also um, be courageous as he is. This this may be a good, but it's in a, a good explanation. But it's only a, it's only half one. What you also have to say then is, David was a type of the Messiah, and he this particular story is one step God uses in His entire plan to work from the fall through Abraham, through the kings of Israel to the Messiah. And especially with David, you have lots of ways in which you can connect that story to um, the coming of Christ later and also show how, how this, for example, how, how the relationship between David and Goliath like um, matches with things Jesus says in the Gospels, for example, whether how Jesus emphasized uh, that uh, those who came last will be the first, for example, would be, would be an obvious point of connection. So uh, anyone of you wants to add to this maybe? Yeah, well, I just preached on David and Goliath, Marina, so you can go back and you can listen to it and then tell me whether or not 
I'll let I, you know, Corey. I was adequately redemptive historical. Um, I think so. Um, yeah, I, no, I think it's so important to say uh, first about this, that when we talk about neo-Calvinism and preaching, um, I don't know that it's an exaggeration to say that neo, the neo-Calvinist tradition has been the main catalyst in gifting redemptive historical hermeneutics to the contemporary church in, in the Western world and beyond. And, you know, uh, Gerhardus Voss is um, probably the most important figure in that narrative, but it's not only him. And Voss is taking so many of his theological cues in conversation with Bob and Kuyper in his early days. And um, I, I mean, I, I think that we can't miss the significance of that and how neo-Calvinism has been so important for reshaping uh, the Christological context of, of preaching. And um, I think that uh, th there's a lot of preachers, thankfully, being trained in that method of preaching today. And it, it may be lost on a lot of people that this is a product of neo-Calvinist theology of Dutch theology from the early, early 20th century. And so <clears throat> the other side of that, however, and you mentioned this, I think you were getting at this, I think, Marie, this is just that uh, there, there are, um, there are some negatives in that uh, redemptive historical preaching can sometimes lose the anthropological emphases of neo-Calvinism, uh, the Augustinian emphases of neo-Calvinism, and that's because it doesn't actually preach to the affections. It doesn't treat the person as an entire person. It's it can be oftentimes pretty arid and pretty intellectual. It can, you know, show how David is a type of Christ and. Uh, and, you know, it can talk about how don't don't read the David and Goliath story as mere moral example, as moralistic, but as uh, Christological and typological. And then it stops. And um, the problem, the problem often in redemptive historical preaching is that it's left to itself and it's left without treating the subjective dimension of the human person, the affections and uh, really treating um, the both the subjective and objective side that fact that truth has got to penetrate down to uh, the whole of the self and that real I mean real change in preaching just doesn't come about by just showing somebody that Jesus was present in the Old Testament it, it happens by actually um, you know success in preaching from a human perspective in my mind is when uh, when fact about Jesus Christ moves the heart and so I think neo-Calvinists preaching at its, at its best in the tradition combined redemptive historical hermeneutics, you know, the Christological context of scripture, which is the way scripture ought to be read, but also did it uh, at its best by preaching to the heart and really attending to the affections and paying attention to the human person within the midst of their contemporary context. You know, and, and Bob Inc., you know, that we talk about that orthodox yet modern sensibility um, and that's right. That's got to be right there in preaching. You've got to be orthodox, if we could use that word, just say you've got to be biblical, theological, and yet um, modern in the sense that you've got to address the modern person in the midst of modernity uh, in the ways that modernity has been good for them and bad for them or whatever you want to call it, post-modernity. Uh, but neo-Calvinism actually has, has changed preaching because it, it has recovered both of those things. A sort of Augustinian, uh, also Edward, Edwardsian, Edward, Jonathan Edwards-esque emphasis on both Christological context and um, the wholeness of the human person in the midst of their contemporary culture. Yeah, and for I guess for listeners, you know, for whom this might sound completely new, maybe they're asking, why would you go in this direction anyway? What's the impetus for it? And within this tradition, the reason. I think most importantly is actually from Jesus himself. Um, so classic text for this from the road to Emmaus. It's after Jesus crucifixion, resurrection, they're disappointed disciples who are you know, abandoning the faith and they thought that Jesus was the Messiah, but he was crucified. And so in the New Testament, Jesus walks with them on the road to Emmaus. They don't know that it's him. But um, but we have there in scripture that beginning with Moses and the prophets, Jesus opened up the scriptures to them and um, and then explains how the Old Testament is about himself and how it all points forward to 
his incarnation to his crucifixion to his resurrection and the idea that you get from this then is that when jesus reads the old testament um, ultimately the point of it all is that uh, it's explicable in relation to himself and then what you find in the book of acts after this is that um, for example the apostle paul will spend a really long time in one place reasoning with people from moses and the and the and, and, the, and the prophets or moses and the law um that jesus uh, had to be crucified that jesus had to be raised so you find this the the idea that then is that the same hermeneutic the same way of interpreting um the bible is then carried over from the road to emmaus to the it's, it's how the apostles handled the bible and interpreted it as well um, and you know, Corey, you were saying that that neo Calvinism has been so important in, um, in I guess injecting that way of thinking about how to read the Bible and then how to preach it into the church in the in the twenty first century. But actually, I think as as and I agree with you there. But neo Calvinism didn't invent this. Um, so if you go back way through the history of biblical hermeneutics uh, and the history of Christianity, you go back to the patristic period and you look at you know. Irenaeus, um, you look at all these really, you know, like really, really far back um, Christian uh, preachers, uh, readers of scripture. And what you find is that they talk in the same language that Marinus was talking in there about type and anti-type. Um, so what you find is that the, the, the in the Old Testament, you have all these types. They're things that point forward to something. That they're that they're fulfilled in the anti-type, and they they look at Old Testament in relation to New in those terms, or they look at it in terms of promise and fulfillment, um, or they look at it in terms of um, uh, of signs and the thing that is signified. But the point is that for them, even if you go back into the the ancient church, um, there's a distinct way to read the Bible that has been preserved by neo-calvinism and that also so that way of looking at promise and fulfillment or sign and things signified or prom or type and anti-type is also there in medieval exegesis so we tend to you know i, I guess saying we there you know protestants quite often reduce medieval biblical interpretation just to the allegorical stuff that then was rejected in the reformation and there is that allegorical there and there's also a, a moral there but they also have a, a, a um, redemptive historical hermeneutical layer and how they read the Bible. So that is a part of medieval exegesis. And then in the Reformation, there are parts of medieval exegesis that get, you know, rejected, jettisoned. So the, the allegorical stuff becomes a lot less prominent. But the redemptive historical side actually doesn't. That carries on in Reformation era exegesis as well. But it's something that then takes a, a really major hit in Protestantism particularly through like liberal higher critical hermeneutics in the 19th century and then that reduces the whole way that you read scripture into a really flat one-dimensional kind of objective historical investigation you treat it as a human text like any other um, and then that w once you buy into that paradigm it then becomes very difficult to want to say that okay there's david and goliath but this actually gestures towards something else how could it, you know, in that kind of um, higher critical paradigm? So you really box yourself in in a way that for Protestants cuts them off from a much older Christian tradition of how to read the Bible. But the neo-Calvinists, the original neo-Calvinists are conversant in all of that. And they, uh, it's quite a conscious rejection of, you know, how to flatten out the meaning of biblical texts. So the neo-Calvinist tradition actually does us all a really great service historically in keeping a much older Christian tradition uh, connected and giving us an entry point into it also as protestants um, and i think that's for me that's part of what makes really good neo-calvinist or preaching in the neo-calvinist tradition informed by its insights so compelling uh, so i guess and again in uk evangelicalism you know there's, there's a lot of skepticism towards redemptive historical hermeneutics and preaching um where i guess the the like, particularly amongst, I guess, like older kind of reformed pastors, I hear a lot of skepticism towards redemptive historical hermeneutics and preaching because they think that it means that you just, you know, in a hop and a skip, you get from any text straight to Jesus. And then you never really wrestle with David. You just go straight from David, you know, King David to King Jesus. And then, you know, there you go, end of the sermon, we've, we've solved the problem. Um, and you never really wrestle with, you know, what it meant, what David's experience of his life was like um, and also, you know, the complexity of how you get from 
the the ways that um, God was preparing us for King Jesus in King David. So much of that is through his failures, um, and that the type you know David is a type of Christ, but he's not the anti-type. So he 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 is a promise that that can't deliver the 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 result of the promise. Okay, so then to get into that, you really have to get into why David is not the savior, but how he prepares us for the savior. And then when you start to get into Old Testament texts like that, it is it's so, like it's just the Bible in technicolor. And then the tradition also gives you these again the psychological insights that help you then relate to David in quite a different way, not in a moralistic, you know, he's just my example to follow away, but he's a deeply flawed human being that God is working through, somehow revealing Jesus through. Um, and then I am also, you know, I, I'm not the savior either. So David points forward to him in his own very flawed way, but also in a way where there's divine grace um, in giving us David as a type of Christ. Uh, but I, you know, I, I exist on the other side of history from the incarnation of the resurrection. So my life looks back to the thing that David's life looks forward to. And then it gives you a completely different way to think about you know, how you preach a biblical text, how you tell someone today about the importance of David for, for their lives and do that in a way that does get you to Jesus. Yeah, yeah, it's right, James. I think it's it's indeed just what, what I also find is that the, the, the fact that it's an historical method um, really values that there is like a history beyond the text and that history is actually relevant. So I completely agree that very often it becomes like if this method flattens out the history because everything very quickly, maybe too quickly, refers to Christ and then like the specifics of the story um, gets overlooked. I, th I think it, it happens a lot. I have experienced that in the, the sermons I've heard, um, but also in the commentaries. Um, there's, there's also quite a, a tradition. I think it, most of it hasn't been translated of like Dutch neo-Calvinist Bible commentary. Um, and I find some of them very, very useful, but there's also there's also a tendency in this to, I think, flatten out the history beyond the text and and um, and just no, it is failing to get to that uh, to get to that history. But I think it if you take uh, the tradition as it as it's meant, or at least as in, in its in its good ways, it does pay attention to that history, and it and it and it should really make alive and let's speak the text and the history beyond the text, um, and just get this get the specifics about how you're going to speak Christ from that particular history um so the, I find that it really helpful um and 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 also the, if if applied well it does make the sermon vivid and also make the make the characters alive and get get people uh, tools to identify with and uh, the people in the story which is I think very helpful especially when you preach from the Old Testament it's all the stories and the plot lines that are there that give ample ways of for for people to identify with and they are they're extremely useful in your um in your sermons so it it, it takes the original history really seriously um but it also takes the history as well you know the, the world that we live in our point in history you know history is just human culture at different times right so and human beings at different times so it also takes the audience very seriously as well so corey you i mean you alluded to that before you know that as as preachers, this tradition challenges us to be both orthodox and modern, so that what we preach is, is the Christian faith that, that we are that we do biblical theology, but it also equips us to be modern in addressing specific audiences and in our context in, in the modern age. Something I'd really like to hear, well, either of you talk about is, um, you know, so we've we've discussed already in the podcast quite a lot the ideas of common grace and antithesis. So neo-Calvinism lays quite a heavy emphasis on common grace, you know, that God gives good gifts to all people, that's, that there's a lot of good out there in the world, but also antithesis as well, um, that there's a tension between faith and unbelief, between sin and grace. Um, so neo-Calvinism, I think, requires you to have both. I think that that means that if you take both of those insights really seriously, the way that you preach will, I think, hopefully help you avoid either, you know, a very, like, uncritically culturally accommodating kind of preaching where you're really just baptizing what goes on in the world out there but also like a, an exclusively antithetical preaching where the the preacher is just the protest voice all the time and curmudgeonly and uh, only opposes what's going on uh, in the in the in the lives and the world of the people that the preacher is addressing but i mean so Corey, for example what's this like for you and how those ideas inform how you preach 
Yeah, I, I always find that that theological understanding of the relationship between uh, the doctrine of creation and the doctrine of recreation, common grace and antithesis, right? That, um, that we are able as Christians to both uphold the good of culture, the goods of culture, because God created the world with structure and that structure carries forth. And even though the direction of that structure has been uh, twisted and torn and broken by the fall, nevertheless, um, we look out and see so many gifts that God continues to pour forth on creation because creation is fundamentally good, not evil, right? Um, <clears throat> what I find is that when I use those theological foundations to address people in the 21st century, in the post-Christian context that I'm in, that it helps, uh, it helps light bulbs go off in the terms of understanding that without that, you just can't really make sense of reality. Uh, people don't know how to understand their normal daily life. Um, I think until you've gotten a proper grasp on the fact that we live in an age of both common grace and antithesis at the very same time, both uh, a good structure and a broken direction at the very same time. And I mean, even little examples, you know, uh, to talk about it very explicitly, you know, I've talked about it in the sermon before that um, it's very difficult without something like this in your repertoire and your theological repertoire to know, uh, to be able to explain why your neighbor, why your neighbor who doesn't believe that Jesus Christ walked out of the grave on the third day is most of the time nicer than you are and um, is, is taking, helping you take your trash out and all sorts of things. And so one of the things I've seen is when we approach preaching with these theological parameters in mind is that people will often kind of wake up and realize this actually fits reality really well. It fits my um, empirical experiences really well. Um, there's a lot more to say about that. I want, I want to hear uh, Marina, you and, and James as well think more about this. I just also want to briefly circle back to a circle to a couple of things that you guys were talking about before. Um, one was just James, you, you had picked up on one of my comments about neo-Calvinism bringing uh, in some sense, redemptive historical preaching to the contemporary church and how that's actually rooted in patristic tradition and medieval tradition. And yeah, th that's so true. I mean, the one thought I had, I guess, while you were talking was also something that you explicitly mentioned a couple episodes ago. And that was that one of the great gifts of neo-Calvinism is that it, um, it, it comes forth from robust Augustinian tradition, the tradition of classical orthodoxy, if you will, um, but, but at the same time also develops it. And so I, I would love to hear you guys respond to this. I'm going to say it maybe a little provocatively, and that's that I do think neo-Calvinism, or let's just say contemporary, let me say it this way, it is possible in the contemporary age uh, to have better resources, um, more fresh views of uh, exegetical insight than ever before in human history. And that that is actually, I think, because of the neo-Calvinist emphasis on redemptive historical hermeneutics, giving birth to an age of preaching um, that is, it is at least possible to be at, um, let me just say, more fresh levels than ever before in human history. And uh, I know that people would, would say, would definitely push back on it, but I, I think it's not only an issue of redemptive historical hermeneutics being more widespread, but also just our simple access to um, extra biblical materials like we've never had before. I mean, it's a post Dead Sea Scroll uh, uh, finding that, that we know more about the ancient Near East than ever before. And we are seeing the Christological context in, I've got- well, Huge let me, of let me true, huge of true, that. yeah. yeah. <laughs> Marinas. Yeah, it's, it's a bold statement indeed. And I'm not sure if I would completely underline it, but I, I definitely, uh, I definitely see a thing in there and the, the, the thing you mentioned at, towards the end there is that you can really like for example that we have it gives you tools to um to really also take seriously all the the new findings within uh in in, in, the, in the in the like all the discoveries in ancient near east for example um and make that enrich your exegesis um yeah i i really think that is that is a long-standing 
neo-Calvinist tradition to do that. I'm thinking of uh, Nordsei, for example. He is he, he became a professor at Utrecht University um, in, in, about in, somewhere in the first half of the I think late 19th, early 20th century, but he, he was really an example of how he how he dove into all those new things that were discovered and used it in, in his exegesis and his commentaries. Um, and someone like, um, like Kurt van Beckham, who is someone who we hope to have in the next season in this episode, he's an Old Testament scholar working in the Neo-Calvinist tradition. Um, and his dissertation also does this. It, it, it engages like the findings, archeology span in ancient Near East with um, exegesis um, and it does it I think in a wonderful way really enriching um, both and not, not using it to like downplay or be be overly critical on the biblical history like, like becoming like very reductionist saying well we can't really know anything and the biblical history is just something that's completely unreliable in the light of, of archaeology um, but he just shows and I, he does it wonderfully um, how they just enrich each other and just make the biblical text more lively um, and, and maybe ask questions also at points, but um, not in your mind. And that's, that's, I think, something that even, even my, my seminary education learned um, implicitly is that like archaeology and ancient Near Eastern history is something to, to be to, something dangerous, something you should not trust um, because it tries to attack um, the, uh, the, the reliability of scripture and and I think it shouldn't and we should be we be open towards it and it can enrich your exegesis um, and, and make it a lot better um, that's what's what I do at least I I, I use like the, the, the more critical commentaries um, because they have a keen eye for this uh, for archaeology for recent uh, recent recent findings and discoveries and they I, I in practice see how that enriches my preaching um, so yeah, um, and and there's 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 one other thing. Um, so this is more like on the the biblical history side, uh, but there's also the other side that James started talking about is is about um, like how you how New Calvinism helps you to um, well to to like to to take the culture you're in very seriously and and also to see how common grace works in that culture. Um, one 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 really nice example is in uh, one of the books Schilder wrote in the 1920s. It's called, uh, it's called Kerktaal and Leven, and it's about the language used in the church. Um, and what he argues in that book, and it, it may seem kind of normal now, but it was really controversial back then, is that the, the church should not have a language of its own. Um, and very often that's what happens. And I think it happens with every church. So the church starts to like have a kind of sub-language as every, um, every company and every and all enterprises and subcultures quickly create language. The church also does that. Uh, but what you had in the Netherlands was that that language was becoming kind of a new Latin. So we had the Dutch from the start of Taling, which is like the, the King James version of the Netherlands, that got a kind of sacrosanct status. And people used that language in the church, in sermons, and when they talked about faith. And then Schilder is very critical on the use of that language because he said it creates this dichotomy between the life in the church and the life in culture outside of the church. And that's a dichotomy that we should never uh, let happen because, well, we fail to see uh, that there is common grace in culture and we fail to see that life is one and that life is not split in different sections. There's not a religious section and then there is the, um, the, the work and school section of life, for example. So he has this really strong critique of all the people who defend uh, such language. He critiques uh, the version of the Psalms that was used, which was completely outdated, argued for a modernization um, of the Psalms that were sung. Um, and, and just says that if you preach, you have to use the language that is current today and really, really do all that you can to avoid using like church language. Um, because the gospel has to be heard in the voice of today, of this time. And it, sh it should speak to the, the people today and it should not like give into that, the, the dichotomy that people want to, want to make between, uh, between the church and what, what is outside of the church. So, and, and, and that's really something that helps, that still helps me a lot. And, and, and this is a warning that I need to hear every time because you, I think we all face that challenge to start speaking church language. Um, that is incomprehensible for people um, outside of it. Yeah, so I feel that tension as well. 
particularly because most of the time when I preach now, it is in this, as I said, very intentional church plant that tries to articulate Christianity in ways that don't assume that everyone who's there is deeply familiar. Um, but I think the way that I try and channel what I, I think maybe Schilder is getting at there is um, the kind of grammar and idiomatic range that I use is, I think, the same way that people speak English in Edinburgh. So it's there's nothing that's archaic there. But at the same time, you know, language isn't the same as vocabulary. So when I preach, I use theological terms um, where necessary, and quite often it is necessary. So we speak the same language. Uh, I preach in the same language that people speak out on the streets, but I have a different set of words that fit within that language to try and expand what they can articulate within the language. So, um, you know, so I, I, I see part of my goal, a part of my task as a preacher, that if people are coming in and, and they have no previous exposure to Christianity, um, it's the, the best option for me isn't to omit all theological vocabulary like sin or justification or forgiveness or atonements or incarnation or trinity. I actually need to give them those words. Um, so I, I, I think the, the way that I try and I, I guess I don't see it as attention. I, I'm totally committed to what Skilder was uh, talking about, I think, anyway, if, if I understand him right. But uh, but then for me, that doesn't mean that you come into church and you, you, you never, ever hear any of those the theological terms because people need need to learn them yeah so to go back to corey's two questions there the kind of the, the huge of true statements that preaching that neo-calvinism has given us like the, the best preaching ever um i i guess two things to say in response to that um so a few years ago i edited and translated a book by herman bavink called herman bavink on preaching and preachers and one of the insights that he has there that i found just so helpful and, and fascinating was about the difficulty of preaching the Christian gospel in the modern age to modern people. Um, and so he writes before well, Charles Taylor, you know, the great Canadian philosopher, so influential nowadays. But Baving's insights on modern people, modern psychology, are so similar to Taylor's. Uh, the resemblance is really striking. So Charles Taylor talks about modern people as having moved from what we could call our secular people, have moved from what in the pre-modern world Taylor calls a porous self. So it's the idea that you see yourself as connected to everything around yourself. You know, you're not hermetically sealed as a kind of disembodied sense of self that happens to be connected somehow to a particular body. Um, but then, you know, uh, and the, but you're very separate from the world around you and also from God. So the pre-modern person has a porous sense of self. But Taylor says that secularized modern people have what he calls a buffered self. So your sense of self is even buffered from your body and your body is quite a different thing to who you really are. And then your body is still buffered from the world and that's all buffered from God as well. So for modern people, it's just much easier to feel very distant from other things and to feel so detached. So Taylor even says that modern people live an excarnate existence. Um, we're separate from our bodies. And I think those are, are fascinating insights. Um, Herman Bavink has extremely similar insights in his work on preaching, that modern people are, are, are buffered in effect. He doesn't use the word, but that's how he describes it. And he says that it's really hard to preach as a modern person in the first place, unless you become quite self-consciously critical of what, it, what being a modern person looks and feels like. So Bavink poses questions like, are we not connected to all things? Um, are we not also connected to God? Um, and that's and for Bavink, that means things like, um, are you moved by the beauty of the world around you, by the grandeur of creation? Are you deeply jarred within yourself by death and sickness and poverty? Do you find it really easy to pass a down and out on the streets and stirs nothing within you? Do you find it really easy to see the glory of God in a sunset and you're just kind of indifferent to it because you've seen it a million times? Or is it easy for you to repel the gospel when you actually see how it shows us? You know, so for Bavink, the creation shows us the greatness of God's mind and the gospel shows us the greatness of God's heart. Do those things move you at all? Or is it, or is it easy for you to just repel them because you're so buffered. And for Bavink, modern people are buffered, modern Dutch people especially. So um, there's this there's this Dutch um, 
literary figure, Everhardus Potgieter, who wrote a book called Jan Sally, or a character, a, a character called Jan Sally, which is like Sleepy John. And it was his um, literary send up of the average like late 19th century Dutchman as someone who had learned to become, you know, never kind of too high or too low, always in control of your emotions. Um, you know, you, you dominate your responses to things, but you're, you're quite disconnected from them all. And the way that Bavink describes the the sleepy john the young sally figure it's it's just like straight out of charles taylor so even if neo-calvinism has given us the best resources with which to exegete biblical texts and also to exegete the human soul the human psychology our inner life and how we live within the culture around us we also like it's it's even if it's the best if they're the best resources for preaching again the neo-calvinist tradition has a critique of modernity that says that this is probably the hardest stage to preach in so uh, um, I, so I think that's a significant thing. So that's my first point in response to Corey. The second, though, is uh, about this way of preaching as true to life with common grace and antithesis. And uh, you actually need both of those things together. And if you only have one, it's just a mess for preaching. So uh, something that I learned from a former colleague, a late colleague, Larry Hurtado, a great New Testament scholar, um, and, and he'd taken this from Rodney Stark, from the sociologist of religion, is that um, what you see throughout history, and, and Larry was a scholar of, of early Christianity in the, in the New Testament era and the ancient world, what you see throughout the history of Christianity is that when Christianity is so close to the center of a culture's values that you can't really tell it apart. Like it never, it, it's so close that it never really challenges any of the, you know, the, the, the kind of sacrosanct values that that culture holds. The, that church never grows numerically because people can't really work out, well, why do I even need this? I mean, it's just a, a less convenient version of what I already have by being part of the culture. So those churches never grow when they're so close there. And there you could say that's that's the kind of church that's all common grace and no antithesis. And in a certain way, okay, kind of playing it slightly loosely with ideas, but also learn from Larry, uh, and then originally beyond that from Rodney Stark, that where churches are so far from the, the kind of, any kind of recognizable features of the culture and they only ever oppose it if they're really distant and peripheral and are let's say all antithesis but no common grace those churches never grow either but actually throughout its history christianity has grown phenomenally you know it's gone from jesus and 12 disciples to the, the world's largest religious community and throughout most of its history the reason that its growth has continued so exponentially and why it grew so powerfully in the ancient world was that christianity had i mean larry didn't use these words and rodney stark didn't but it has this tradition of holding together common grace and antithesis it's able to be part of culture be part of a community and able and has its own way of articulating what's good within that culture but also whilst being i guess the most the most supportive critic that any culture could ever have uh, because it has common grace and antithesis and uh, that's actually just the history of christianity um, but again, I think the significance of neo-Calvinism is that it gives us such clear concepts to make sense of that reality. Yeah, that, that's really, really helpful. Um, so let me walk back what I said earlier now. And uh, well, actually, let me say that I what I'm saying is what you, you ended with, especially at the end of your first point, James, and that's that I do think it's highly defensible and almost um, impossible to deny that we have the best resources uh, for preaching today in 2022, more than ever in history. And I think the claim that neo-Calvinism has, has been a significant part of that is also true. Um, whether or not we have the best preaching in history is a, is a totally separate question. I have no idea how, how you could ever answer that. Or, um, But I do, I will say, and I think you basically said this earlier, that um, neo-Calvinism has helped recover uh, a lot of the, the things that we see in patristic preaching. I mean, one of one example, I suppose, that um, uh, undercuts a little bit of the more pro provocative way I said it earlier is that I I had <laughs> come to this point on a text um, that I was preaching on uh, several months ago and thought, you know, I, this is, I think, a fresh insight, uh, a Christological reading of this particular text that I've not heard of before, I've not seen before. I'm sure somebody else has made it but it feels uh, pretty, pretty uh, insightful. And then um, like a month later, I found uh, the claim so well put in a single sentence by John Owen. 
and he had said you know the exact same thing and it was it was right there and uh it wasn't new at all it was um it was it was already present so yeah i mean i, I stated it in a way to, to get us to talk and think but uh, i agree with, with all of your qualifications and points it's really helpful yeah i can maybe just to make it to make it a little bit more concrete also um use an example a sermon i preached a couple of weeks ago um we had like a series on the topic of uh, of sexuality um and i um so in, in one of those sermons where, where i preached from um uh from the the epistle of um paul to titus is that how you say it yeah um the chapter two where he where he addresses like men and uh and women and slaves and uses a word that comes back often is like um i think probably your translation is like sober or um well and i that's one of the words that was central but part of what i what i did in that sermon and it, it plays very well into the discussion we are having here is that so I described um, the contemporary way we view sexuality and um, that like there's only really one rule in the liberal view on sexuality, which is like don't harm someone else. And if you just obey that rule, everything else is fine and you, you can do whatever you want, basically. Um, and so but then I showed that also within like the liberal discourse around sexuality, you show that this rule doesn't work at some points like it, it just there, there are critiques internal to like the liberal debate on it that like show that there, there are like borders and limits to this um to what's going on so i can just show two books written by people who are non-christian at all who like completely are within that liberal um paradigm but then start to criticize the liberal paradigm from within and then what i did in my sermon is connect to those internal criticisms and points where it doesn't work and then show how to how the gospel and how that's also what paul wants to say partly to in his letter to titus is connecting to those um internal critiques of that liberal paradigm um and then you also note how this is very helpful for many people who are sitting in the pews who are like yeah yeah they they it, that, that they, they they recognize and they are it, it just enhances and makes stronger the message you have um and it has like both an apologetic way because it it like very much shows the the, the relevance and uh yeah like how it's how helpful like the christian values are but it also shows that it is not something that is like from a completely different world but plays very well into the world where we live in and actually we can find connections in the world we live in so that's just just an example to show how how this this combination um between common grace and ethicists can work out in practice in the sermon yeah thanks marinas that's really helpful so i guess it's quite good actually for us to shift the conversation a little bit from talking a lot about the theory of preaching to again concrete examples of preachers um so i think you know for most of our listeners they probably won't ever have heard any of us preach um but uh, probably the most widely listened to preacher in the world uh, in our generation is Tim Keller. And I think for me, uh, Tim Keller, well, I, I, know, I, I know that Tim's, um, his own theology is, is profoundly influenced on many points by the neo-Calvinist tradition. But I think he is such a, a great example of someone who, who shows you how to hold so many of the things that we've been talking about together um, in terms of the biblical exegesis, um, in terms of the um, the way of you know situating yourself within the culture that you're preaching within, both sympathetically and critically, um, in terms of having again these Augustinian psychological insights and also understanding that it's like, you have to be an exegete both of the biblical text and also of human nature in order to deal with the kind of presuppositions. Um, the kind of blind cultural biases that people have as you preach to them. So, and that's not an either or, that you either just talk about human beings or that you talk about the Bible. Um, so it's really strong within the Neo-Calvinist tradition that, that you that you should really try and do both as a preacher. Um, and you, you get to that from all kinds of different people in the tradition. Uh, you know, really early on in the Neo-Calvinist tradition, figure like J.H. Donner, who was proto-neo-Calvinist, but he was Bavinck's pastor as a student in Leiden. And when you look at Bavinck's own notes of his preaching, it's, you know, the, this guy can 
exegete biblical texts so well and he wrote biblical commentaries and also his psychological insights are so compelling and he addresses big issues in my young life like modernity and its fruits um uh, what does it mean to be a christian in a, in a pretty godless university city um so those kinds of things you know you get the same kind of idea and i think coming across in van Til as well with the idea that you know to present the gospel to someone without even considering the presuppositions that they have in listening to how you present it is only half the task so you have to address them and uh, and where they are as listeners um and do that kind of work as well as part of preaching so but i think keller is just such a, a prominent example and lots and lots of people really love his preaching uh, not everyone in the world does but for many people um and and you know if you're wondering you know why uh, his preaching has this kind of effect or, or the tradition that, that has shaped it uh, it's it's the tradition that we've been talking about yeah i agree james i mean earlier when we were talking about the um the benefits of neo-calvinism for preaching I, I almost just said let's just point out the elephants in the room and say that we're, that we're thinking about Keller here when we say so much of what we're saying. Um, yeah, I mean, I think a question like, who are the best preachers right now on planet Earth or, or in America or in Europe or wherever is, is a, futile, a futile question. You know, uh, it, it's, it's one that uh, personality plays so much of an aspect in how people hear preaching, uh, I've learned. And I know the, the kind of kinds of preaching I like, I can talk to a person sitting next to me um, and they prefer um, styles and uh, things so different from from what I, I prefer. But uh, earlier I mentioned that I, I think it's important to point out that neo-Calvinism has really helped preaching in the 20th and 21st century. And I also think it's important to say that um, Keller has, in the, as a preacher within the neo-Calvinist tradition, has done more than anybody to uh, aid preaching in the 20th and 21st century. And uh, I know that I'm personally very grateful to um, his insights on preaching. I mean, even um, his talks on preaching of the heart and his book on preaching have been so helpful. And what he does is exactly what, what we've been talking about. He does what uh, the neo-Calvinist tradition has helped emphasize so much. And that's the, the unity of redemptive historical hermeneutics and what you were just talking about, James, the emphasis on being able to talk to the human subject to the point of their affections, to move their heart and do it all uh, in the light of the current culture that they're situated in by um, paying attention to both common grace and antithesis. And uh, I, I do think um, in large measure, those aspects of a method within preaching um, and of course, we haven't talked about the unity of exegetical theology, biblical theology, and systematic theology and preaching and all those sorts of things as well, and, and what it means to use the language as well and, and all that. But in terms of neo-Calvinist emphases, that combination between redemptive historical hermeneutics, a, a rich, robust Christological reading of the text that doesn't flatten it, but pays attention to that sacred history that spirals throughout the Old and New Testaments uh, and comes to fullness in the incarnation, um, th that plus preaching to the affections by paying attention to the culture in a very uh, insightful and deep way um, is the combination of, of great, of good preaching. And then, you know, as Keller puts it, the, the Holy Spirit has to make great preaching. Um, and, and I do think he's, he's the best example of that, that, that we've had. Yeah, thank you for that. I think, well, it, it just goes the same for the Netherlands. I think Keller has been, almost all of his books were translated and, and sell really well here also in, in, in this context. And I think he has worked in a way, like brought back our own new Calvinist tradition in fresh words, just said by someone else um, and, and put it back on the table there and inspired many preachers to like start preaching in, in, in like a good way. Um, and exactly how it used to be done here, or at least was preached here. Um, but yeah, so that's that's uh, that's interesting. And it's, I think it's also I think by by way of like um, closing off. I think is to say that it also shows maybe that Keller is someone who does it really well and inspires many people. That it's really hard to do it this way. And it's something you you touched upon also, Corey, in the beginning. Um, I just like mentioned an example of, of my, myself doing it. This is an example where I was pretty happy with, uh, but very often, and there's many examples where I struggle a lot more and just find it very difficult to do it. Um, it this trying to do this um, 
is really something that now, like you said, also Corey in the beginning is something that puts uh, a strain on your week somehow and makes it a struggle every time to not just like um, have a proper historical uh, and Christocentric explanation of the text, but also really bring that in conversation with today's culture, finding um, commonalities um, within the culture today and also finding ways how to criticize things. It's, it's really a big, um, a big mandate every week to, to make a sermon who does it, and, and I'm sure I'm, I'm failing it pretty often. Um, but it really helps to have this kind of, at least, um, yeah, point just that, that you always try to do this um, and, and do your best to, to, to make a sermon who exactly makes this, makes this combination. Yeah, final thought from me for today. Um, you know, and Bavink and Preaching and Preachers, he says that another problem with late moderns is that um, they had become connoisseurs of preaching and um, had just completely unrealistic expectations for the standard that a preacher can hit every in every single sermon. And um, the kind of question that Bavink poses is, um, you're listening to the sermon is not the most important part of the, or the sermon itself isn't even the most important part of, of the liturgy. It's actually the worship of the people in response to the sermon. So if you leave church simply having looked down your nose on the sermon you just heard because of whatever inadequacies by the preacher, and you haven't been there to worship, um, to offer up your own priestly sacrifice, he calls it your own praise, then um, the, the kind of connoisseurship towards the sermon isn't helpful anyway. Uh, Corey, Marinas, it's been a real pleasure. I've uh, loved talking to you guys about preaching today, something that we're all really passionate about, and it's been just a, a great, helpful conversation. I've learned a lot. Look forward to listening to more of your preaching, both of you as well. Uh, thank you to everyone who's joined us uh, for this conversation. If you've enjoyed the conversation, enjoying the podcast, um, please be sure to subscribe on whatever podcast app you use. Um, if you'd like to leave a, leave a review of us as well, uh, We'd like to hear feedback from people as well. So you can you can contact us through social media. Um, we have an email address too, which is Corey. Grace and common podcast at gmail.com. Yeah, I should really know that by now. Uh, so yeah, write to us and uh, yeah, give us some interaction. We'd love to hear from you guys. Thank you so much for your contributions today. Thanks again to the listeners. This is Grace and Common. <laughs>